Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Contend. All right, so I am very excited to begin a new book study uh, with you this afternoon. But before we read verse one, I do wanna talk a little bit about the background of the man who penned this epistle. And so the author of the letter we're about to study was a first century Jewish man named Jude, and he grew up in an obscure area of the world, a region called Galilee. And so his home was located in a very small village called Nazareth, and that's where his father Joseph had a carpentry, but probably a little more accurate, a masonry business. And his mom, of course, was a busy homemaker, Mary. And so Jude had four brothers and at least two sisters. So all in all, there were eight people, probably more, eight plus people in this modest home in the hills of Galilee. And so at some point, Jude's dad, Joseph, passed away and he left the family business to his oldest son, Jude's big brother, and the most famous person who's ever lived, and that is Jesus. And so Jesus worked really hard as a carpenter throughout his 20s, and we know from Luke 3.23 that when he was about 30 years of age, he took an early retirement from the carpentry business, and he hit the road as an itinerant preacher. Now I want you to try to put yourself in the sandals of the author of the letter we're gonna study, and his brothers. Okay, and so they had to be surprised when Jesus walked away from the family business and he uh, decided to become an itinerant preacher. But they must have been shocked when they started to hear the rumors that were coming from their big brother's ministry that he was healing people, that he was performing miracles, and that some people were calling him the Messiah. And so, Jesus' four little half-brothers, you know, they must have thought when they heard that, Messiah, <laughs> wait a minute, we grew up with him. He's our big brother, we hung out with him, we worked with him, right? Son of David, right? King of Israel? No, 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 you got it all wrong. He's just a carpenter. How many of you guys believe that Jesus was way more than a carpenter, right? Way more than a carpenter. And so one day, the Lord returned back home. He had been on the road for a while, traveling, preaching, um, performing miracles. He comes back home to his small little village in the hills of Galilee, Nazareth, and as was his custom, he joined the people from his hometown for the Saturday synagogue service. I love the fact that one of the gospels, when it referred to Jesus going to synagogue, on Saturday, it said that it was his custom. I love that. So during the service, he got up, he preached the word, and the people were blown away. They were blown away, number one, by the power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit on his teaching and preaching ministry, but they were also blown away by the reports that they were hearing, not from their own village, but from other villages in Galilee, of these miracles that he was performing, and they said, the home folk, said, and I quote, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? In other words, who does this guy think he is? And then they said this, check it out. 
is this not the who? Carpenter, the local guy, the handyman, the son of Mary, and the brother of James. And by the way, it's not cousins. These are not his cousins. Mary and Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, consummated the marriage and they had a bunch of kids. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph? What's the next name? Jude, author of the letter. And Simon, and are not these his sisters? Plural, there is at least two, maybe more. Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And so why did they take offense at Jesus? Well, he tells them in the very next verse. He said to his hometown, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And so the Lord's own hometown, Nazareth, rejected him. And you know what hurt even more? His own household rejected him. And it's worse than we think because earlier in Mark's gospel, we see that the Lord had become so famous that these massive crowds were following him wherever he went, people, 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 needy people, needing ministry to the point they kept coming to him where he didn't even have time to take a lunch break. He, Jesus, the Bible says, didn't even have time to eat. And when his family found out about it, check out how they responded in Mark 3, 21. When his family heard of these crowds, they went out to seize him. Right? They're trying to control Jesus. How many of you guys know you can't control Jesus? Let him control you. (laughs) They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. What does that mean? That means that his own family thought he was crazy. Now, some of you guys can relate to this. You're living for the Lord, right? You're not just a nominal Christian, a casual Christian. You're a devoted Christian. As I said last week, you're not a Christer Christian. In other words, you don't just go to church on Christmas and Easter. You don't define your Christianity like, I'm an American or I'm a Christian. And by the way, this past Thursday night, even among all the flooding, Um, we had a beautiful first Thursday service and we baptized either 16 or 17 people this past Thursday night. That's cool. And um, one of the gentlemen, before he was baptized, he told me, uh, he said, I'm done with being a Christer Christian. I thought, man, that's great. All in, right, for the Lord. And so maybe, maybe some of you guys can relate to what Jesus went through. You're all in for the Lord, but your family has rejected your Christian faith. And some of your family members think you're crazy. I want you to take heart because Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He's been there, he's done that, he's got the t-shirt. He knows what you're going through. He knows the hurt, he knows the pain. And I want you to be encouraged by this, that even though some of your family members have rejected you, Jesus Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you. And on top of that, not only do you have a natural family, you have a spiritual family of a bunch of like-minded people, and we all want to serve the Lord because we believe Jesus is number one. And so what a gift, right, that we have. Jesus' hometown rejected him. His own household rejected him. But we know that his mama, Mary, 
she never rejected her boy. Mary never rejected or dishonored or ridiculed her son Jesus. Of all people, she knew exactly who her son was because of an experience that she had 30 years prior to the ministry of Jesus. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. But it says in uh, Luke's gospel, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and by the way, it's so cool um, that when Mary met Elizabeth, that the baby leapt in Elizabeth's womb. You see how there's life in the womb, ladies and gentlemen? And so in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. And it says that he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord's with you. Don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. You're gonna conceive in your womb and bear a son and you're gonna call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. I love this. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, the house of Israel forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary's like, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, okay? So when you've had an experience like that, you never forget it. I don't care if 30 years have passed. And so Mary knew exactly who Jesus was, but her boys, including Jude, they did not share her faith. And if you want more proof, Check out what John said, that even, not even his, Jesus' brothers believed in him. Now, how many, of you are, how many of you are glad that when you were an unbeliever, the Lord never gave up on you? Right, isn't that good news? The Lord never gave up on you. He just kept pursuing you and pursuing you and pursuing you. And I remember in my own life, at least a year before I came into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I just knew something was out here. I didn't know what in the world was going on. Something's out here and, and whatever that is is pursuing me. And so praise God, Jesus never gave up on his little brothers. No matter what they had done to him, rejecting him, dishonoring him, ridiculing him, he continued to pursue them in love. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse seven, after his resurrection, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, right, he appeared, he took the initiative, he appeared to James. And what happened? James was changed. James, the one who used to not believe in him, his little half-brother, James became a believer. He grew like crazy. He became the lead pastor of the megachurch of Jerusalem, opening chapters of Acts. And he penned the letter that we spent all summer studying, James. And the good news is that Jesus' other little brothers, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, also came to faith. You say, how do you know? Well, Luke told us in Acts. Luke said that all these, that's 120 disciples right before the day of Pentecost, all these with one accord, 
were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, look at this, and his what? His brothers, all right? And so his brothers, who used to not even believe in him, now they're praying to him, and later on, just a little while after this verse, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the beautiful, beautiful truth that shows God's heart towards the lost. And so you may be here in this room, you may be watching on camera right now, and you're not really sure about Jesus, or whether he's the eternal son of God, or whether or not he really you know, died for my sins and rose again, the resurrection true. Here's what you need to know, that God absolutely loves you. He loves you. And here, here, here's what I know, that, that so often, you know, some Christians, they start to have this mentality that, you know, God hates all these sinners. No, you forgot John 3, 16. For God so loved the, what? World, he loves everybody. He's not willing that anybody should perish. And so if you're in this room or you're watching right now and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, you need to know he loves you, he's pursuing you, but here's the thing, he is not gonna force himself on you. You gotta make that decision to turn from your sins and turn to him in repentance and faith. And so that's what happened with Jesus' little brothers. Now, after Pentecost, we're not too sure exactly what Jude did. But here's what we know. Like his brother James, he grew really strong in the faith. And not only that, from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, it appears that Jude got married and he became an itinerant preacher, a traveling missionary or a traveling evangelist, and he took his wife with him on the road as they shared the gospel. Now, how ironic is that, right? Just like his big brother left the family business and became an itinerant preacher, leaving Nazareth to, to, to share the good news of the gospel, so now Jude, years later, Jude's doing the same thing. And so as we get into this letter, and I don't know if it's gonna take us five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, but as we get into this letter, there's gonna be a certain tone that comes from this little letter. And from that tone, you and I are gonna be able to discern the fact that Jude was a very passionate Christian. He's passionate, he's uncompromising, he's bold, and he's also very, very humble. All right, so let's take a look at how he introduces himself to the Christian community. Right now, if you're looking at Jude, verse one, can you say amen? amen? Okay, so here we go. Jude, a servant, I love that. A servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, and by the way, everybody look at me real quick. If you know for sure that you're a born again Christian, please raise your hand right now. Okay, so this is, talking not just to the Christians in the first century, but to you. I want you to hear God's heart to you because so many people think God's mad at me, God hates me, God's done with me. Listen, stop being shaped by the wrong voices. Start being shaped by the word of God. Listen to the God's heart towards you. He says in the middle of verse one, to those who are called, Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy 
peace, you see God's heart towards you? Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. All right, so who is the author of this letter? If you're taking notes, the author is Jude, the brother of James, and the servant, the servant of Jesus Christ. Now he could have opened the letter by saying, Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ. But instead of that, he said, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. He could have, you know, boasted about his uh, relationship with Jesus, that he was a sibling of the Lord. He could have bragged about that. He could have used that relationship that he had with Jesus as a way um, to exploit people. He could have used that relationship, right, for his own personal advantage. But instead of all that, no, 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 no. This guy, he just says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I love that. I love that because where did he get that from? He got that from his big brother. Because Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this whole idea of service and servanthood, for some reason it's being lost in the church today. Here's why, because we're allowing ourselves to be shaped by our culture instead of allowing ourselves to be shaped by the word of God. And so what is our culture all about? Our culture is all about their title, their position, right, their career. But one of the ways that you know if a person is truly being changed by the Holy Spirit is this. If you're with me, say amen right here. Here's how you know. That person is not into titles, they're into towels. In other words, they're not all about their position, their title, their career, no. They're about washing other people's feet and drying them, John 13. They're all about serving the Lord and serving others. They're willing to do whatever it takes. There's no job beneath them. It's not like I'm too good, so get someone else to do that. That's our culture, that's junk. The word of God says, no, 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 no. Hey man, be a servant. Let that be your title. Your name, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's Jude. Now, when did he write this letter? We think, question mark, somewhere between AD 68 and AD 70. Now the question mark is there because we're not really sure. All we can be really 100% sure on is that Jude wrote this in the second half of the first century. But scholars have come up, some of them, with this date. And I'll let you know real quick how they got to it and then we'll move on to something more applicable. And so these scholars say that, you know, Jude must have written after Peter wrote 2 Peter, but before the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. And they come to this conclusion, here's why, because when you, when you read uh, Jude and you read 2 Peter and you put them side by side, they're very, very similar. And so some of these scholars say that Peter mentored Jude, he uh, influenced Jude and poured into Jude, and so what did Jude do? Jude used some of Peter's teachings in his letter and therefore, Jude must have written after Peter, 
And so we know that Peter wrote Second Peter and then he probably died around AD 67. And so Jude had to have written sometime 68 or more. And then they'll say, um, if the destruction of the temple, the Jewish temple, which we know as a fact of history took place in AD 70, if that had happened already, Jude would have written about it. He's a Jew. The temple's like such a big deal. Of course he would have said something about it, but he didn't, and so therefore it must have been somewhere between AD 68 and AD 70. It's plausible, it's probable, it's not certain. All right, so let's move on to something more important. Who did Jude write to? Here's the audience. Those who are kept, can you guys say the word kept? Kept. By the way, how many of you guys have the King James or New King James that it says preserved? Yeah, same thing, right? Those who are kept, preserved for Jesus Christ. Where do you get that from? Please look again at verse one. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and here it is, kept, preserved for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so if you're a born-again Christian, here's, what, here's what's gotta happen in your life, in your thinking. You gotta come to a place where you begin to rest in the truth that you do not have to keep yourself saved by self-effort. You gotta get to that point in your thinking. So many Christians have this attitude. I know I've been saved by grace through faith, but now I gotta work really hard in order to keep my salvation. Now I gotta work really hard so I don't lose my salvation. I'm saved by the Savior, but now I gotta stay saved by sweat. You know, I'm saved by Emmanuel, but now I gotta stay saved by, by all this effort. And ladies and gentlemen, it's just not true. As God's children, we're kept, we're preserved for Jesus Christ, and it's all because of God's grace. It's all God's grace. The word kept, if you're taking notes, it means to attend to carefully. Look at God's heart towards you. You're kept for Jesus Christ. So to attend to carefully, to take care of, to guard, to keep one in the state in which he is. All right, so what state or what condition are we in? We are the sheep of his flock. We're the sheep of his flock. And so being kept or being preserved is not about the sheep. Check out this picture right here. It's about the shepherd. Are you guys with me this afternoon? You're kept for Jesus Christ. And that's not about you. It's about the shepherd. And so if a sheep survives its whole life without ever being devoured by a predator, who gets the credit? Not the sheep, <laughs> the shepherd does. Let me give you a little silly illustration. All right, imagine if a sheep came to you at the end of its life and looked at you and said, you know what, I have never been devoured by a wolf. And here's why, it's because I'm so awesome. I mean, look at these long claws. 
Look at these sharp fangs. If a wolf ever came after me, I'd turn around and put that thing on the ground and tear them to shreds, right? Now that's absurd. Why? Well, number one, sheep don't talk, okay? So, but number two, they don't have long claws. They don't have sharp teeth. They're helpless. Ladies and gentlemen, they're prey animals, P-R-E-Y, which means that when they sense danger, their instinct is not to fight, it's to flee. I mean, have you ever watched on National Geographic a sheep chasing a wolf? Right? It just doesn't happen. I'm going to ask you again. If a sheep survives its whole life without ever being devoured by a predator, who gets the credit? Everybody say the shepherd. (laughs) The shepherd gets the credit. He gets all the glory because we're kept for him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the good shepherd. He's faithful to guard us with his staff. He's faithful to keep his sheep forever. And that's why Jesus said these amazing words. I encourage you to memorize this like I did years ago because it brings a lot of comfort to my heart. Listen to the word of God. Jesus said, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you belong to the shepherd, he's got you, and he's never going to let you go. Let's put our hands together and thank the shepherd for his amazing love. His amazing love. It's it's called grace. And so after Jude reminded God's people of how special they were, right, called, beloved by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and, and you know, peace and love be multiplied to you. After all that, he now charges them to do something really important. All right, so right now if you're looking at verse three, can you say amen? Okay, beloved. Okay, so that's, that's you. That's important, you know, In other words, verses one, two, and now this first word in verse three, it's it's such a distinction between that group and the rest of his letter where he's just gonna come out swinging, all right? So know who you are in Christ, beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, here it is, to contend Title of the message. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. All right, so Jude wanted to write to the Christian community uh, concerning the gift of salvation, which all true believers, right, have in common. But something happened that changed his mind about the topic of the letter. We don't know what happened. I think probably he got a knock on his door. Right, and he opens the door, and there's a friend, and the the friend says, Jude, you're not gonna believe this. False teachers have infiltrated the churches, and they're teaching doctrines that are contrary to the faith that the apostles have delivered to us. And when Jude heard that, I know this, because I have this gift called being a pastor, and some of you have the same gift. 
When Jude heard this, his blood began to boil. He got angry. The Bible doesn't say don't get angry. The Bible says um, be angry and sin not. There's nothing wrong with getting angry. And I know Jude got angry. I knew, no, his blood began to boil as he thought about the wolves coming after Christ's sheep. And he knew that the topic of writing about the common salvation that all believers have has got to be put on the shelf for a moment. To just got to wait. Why? I got to write about something else. And so instead, this is what he writes about. Here's the purpose of the letter. Jude wrote this letter to exhort Christians to, what's the word shouted out? Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Now, did you just hear that thump? That was the ball, it just landed in your court. This is God's calling on your life. You say, no, not me, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not a missionary or a teacher. Jude isn't writing to pastors. He's writing to the Christian community. He tells the whole Christian community, you guys need to contend for the faith. Now, the Greek word is very interesting, this Greek word for contend. Let's take a look at it. I'm not gonna try to pronounce the transliteration, <laughs> but it means to exert intense effort on behalf of something. Now, look at the, the word, okay? So you see E-P, all right, stop right there. Now let's start with A. A-G-O-N-I-Z, add an E to it. What word do you have? Agonize, okay? So from the root of the Greek word, we get the English word to agonize. And so as I said earlier, as born-again Christians, we do not, exert intense effort in order to keep our salvation. No, we're kept for Jesus Christ by grace. But we do absolutely, 100%, hear this, we have to exert intense effort in order to defend the Christian faith against false teachers. We gotta fight. I'm changing the illustration now from a sheep to a warrior. You gotta fight. Now, this does not mean that when you come into contact with a false teacher, you punch the guy in the face, okay? We don't do that. We're Christians. What does it mean then? It means that we must resist false teachers, we must resist their false teachings, and we must help others not to be influenced by them. That's what it means. Fight. Contend. Now, Paul predicted that the de departure from the faith is gonna occur in the latter days, the latter time. Look at this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart, apostatize from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Do you see who's behind departing from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching the teachings of demons right now around the world in churches doctrines of demons are being taught 
Now I know that unsettles some of you in this politically correct culture that we live in, but it's absolutely true. False doctrine is being taught. Teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Of course their consciences are seared because nobody can stand and teach false doctrine without coming under true guilt from God unless they've done it so much it doesn't even phase them anymore. And the Holy Spirit said, Paul, this is gonna happen. And so it happened. It happened after the time of the apostles and it continued for 2,000 years even to our generation. And it seems like, man, more than ever, right? More than ever now, and I think the reason more than ever now is because of this thing called the internet, it's everywhere. And so in modern times, certain mainline Protestant denominations have departed from the true Christian faith. Are you guys with me this afternoon? I'm trying to help you not to be influenced by false teachers. And so in modern times, certain mainline Protestant denominations have departed from the true Christian faith by exchanging New Testament truth for a more progressive, a more liberal type of theology. And so over the years, as you study the last couple hundred years, over the years, many of these denominations, they've denied that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God and the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. They say, you know what? Come on. Breathed out by God? <laughs> no, no, it's just a history book. Well, how convenient, because a history book doesn't have any authority over your life. And so now you can do whatever you wanna do. How convenient. If you wanna make Calvary your church home, here's what you need to know. In this local church, we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. All of it. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of this. We believe in verbal inspiration, which means every word in the original manuscript breathed out by God. We believe in plenary inspiration, which means the whole thing, Genesis through Revelation in the original manuscripts, breathed out by God. This is our authority. What God says goes. And so it's so sad, but many who identify themselves as Christians have denied the incarnation that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. They say, no, it's a fairy tale. They deny his virgin birth. They say, you know, you have Greek mythology? Well, this is Hebrew mythology of virgin birth. Come on, no one can believe in a virgin birth. And so they, and they identify themselves as Christian. They're having church right now. They're not teaching the Bible, they're teaching like a little Reader's Digest type of message to make you feel good. And so they denied the virgin birth, they denied the sinless life of Jesus, they denied his authentic miracles, they denied his substitutionary atonement, they've denied his bodily resurrection, not spiritual, his bodily resurrection, and they've denied his literal return. More and more we see religious people who identify as Christians, but here's the, here's the problem, they hold to a liberal 
theology. And here's what you need to know, that when you hold to a liberal theology, it's not too long before you're involved in all kind of sinful practices. And so we have to be careful. Many who identify themselves as Christian endorse the homosexual lifestyle. They endorse gay marriage. They endorse the ordination of gay clergy. Ladies and gentlemen, all of which contradict the clear teaching of God's word. And some people will say, Pastor, you can't talk like that, right? It's not politically correct. In our culture, we're, we're, we're taught to be tolerant. And so you can't use that kind of speech. Well, let me, let, me, let me help you out for a second. We are not called to be shaped by our culture. We're called to be shaped by this book. We have to look at the world through the lens of the Holy Scriptures. We have to adopt a biblical worldview. This is one of the big reasons we started the school across the street. And this is one of the things that we stand on as a church. Some say, well, that's hate speech. No, it's not. It's the most loving thing you can do. If somebody's on a wrong road and you know that there's a, a cliff and they're gonna fall, you gotta warn them in love, but you gotta warn them. And so, man, in addition to liberal, mainline, Protestant denominations, there's also all these cults in the world. The most famous in America are the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. You know, because they are at your door every Saturday. And by the way, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they both deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and they both deny that salvation is by faith alone. That's why they're a cult. In addition to the liberal denominations and the cults, there's false teachers all over the TV, all over the internet. We gotta be careful. And so I could really make this into a 20-week series, but I don't have time. And so I'm just gonna give you three articles that you can look at this week to help you go a little deeper on what I'm talking about now. And so what are we called to do in verse three? We're called to contend for the faith. Okay, so this is how you can help yourself be educated and help others not to be influenced by false teachers. And so if you go to gotquestions.org, here's three articles that you can look up. First of all, what are the mainline denominations? Some of you have never heard that mainline denominations have apostatized a lot of them and um, no longer hold to biblical truth. Well, you can read more about it right there. Um, what is the definition of a cult? So the great definition in that article, and you can get other articles about the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. And I thought this was very interesting. This week I read this article. Are all prosperity preachers charlatans or false teachers? And so what we see in our own tribe, our own group, what do you mean? I mean being evangelical Christians what we have seen is the word of faith movement has come in, prosperity teaching has come in, and there's a lot of false teaching in those movements. And you gotta be aware of those things. And so maybe take a picture before we put it down, but that would be great for you to begin to help yourself to know how to contend for the faith. Now, he says contend for the faith which was once for all delivered. 
All right, so what's the faith? Acts 2.42, they, that's the brand new church on the day of Pentecost, devoted themselves to the, okay, say the next two words, go ahead. There it is, right there, there's the faith. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And so I said this a couple weeks ago, right? Because the apostles were directly taught by Jesus Christ, including Paul, Galatians chapter one, verses 11 and 12, directly taught by Jesus Christ. Okay, so because the apostles were directly taught by Jesus Christ, they were qualified to teach the church. And we are so blessed, we are so happy, we are so thankful, Lord, (laughs) that their teachings and the teachings of their associates have been included. It's called the New Testament. Okay, so how can we define the faith? I love, love, love this definition. What is the faith, right? Contend for the faith, what does that mean? The faith is the body of truth that was delivered, past tense, to the church by our hero, Jesus Christ, through his apostles and their associates, which was recorded, thank God, in the New Testament. Now why is that so important? It's that definition alone can help you contend for the faith because when you're confronted by something, you can put whatever that something is next to this definition and you can know whether it's true or false. And so it's a body of truth. It was delivered to the church by Jesus to his apostles and their associates, and it's recorded in the New Testament. And you gotta understand that it was delivered, (laughs) past tense. John MacArthur, he's so eloquent. Here's what he said. The phrase, once for all, refers to something that is accomplished or completed one time with lasting results and no need of repetition. Through the Holy Spirit, God revealed the Christian faith. See, he revealed it, past tense, to the apostles and their associates in the first century. Their New Testament writings, and don't forget this part, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In conjunction with the Old Testament scriptures, make up the true knowledge of Jesus Christ and are all believers need for life and for godliness. Well said, John MacArthur. And so everybody, please look at me. This is all we need right here. This is all we need. And so we don't try, as we're seeking to define the Christian faith, we don't add to the Bible, we don't subtract from the Bible, Right, if you're with me, say amen here. We shouldn't change the Bible because it doesn't sit well with us. Oh my goodness, wait a minute. I don't like that verse. I'm gonna ignore that one. Oh, but, ooh, I like this one. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you. I'll put that on my refrigerator. And we cherry pick, we skip around. So ladies and gentlemen, one more statement and I'm done. We don't 
change the Bible. We change ourselves. It's called repentance. And it's what we're called to do. Sometimes the Bible is like candy and it tastes really good. Sometimes it's like medicine. And even though it's hard going down, it's really, really good for us. Amen? Amen.